Thank you, Doug, for that. Um, it is an interesting time, uh, not just for educators, but for anyone. Um, he shared the polarizing um, effect that all of this has had. So one of the first things we did was send out a survey to our families and asked them, uh, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how concerned are you for your child to return to school regarding COVID-19? And the number one answer we got was a one, not concerned at all. And it was like 19 and a half percent. And the number two answer we got was a 10. Literally, I'm not making it up. And it was like 18.8 percent. So within half a percentage of one another, we had the complete most opposite answers you could have. Um, and so that has kind of summed up COVID for us. Um, but our families have been great, um, been incredibly supportive. The other thing that has summed up COVID that people don't talk about on the news as much um, is that COVID has had a remarkable um, way to affect clothing. Um, the last time I wore this shirt was kind of before COVID, and COVID has somehow shrunk it quite a bit. So uh, I don't know how that trans, how the virus translated into clothing or not. Um, I, I'm going to speak today over uh, Christian education. I know that, you know, the week before Thanksgiving, you would think, hey, I would expect a, a Thanksgiving message. Um, and, and that's just not where the Lord led me to share, other than the fact that I'm incredibly thankful for Christian education. Uh, and I'm incredibly thankful for Temple Baptist Church. Uh, that has decided to have um, a Christian school. Forty-seven years ago, the leadership of Temple Baptist Church prayerfully made the decision to begin a Christian school. Uh, Christian education is in the DNA of our church community. Uh, and, and Temple Baptist Church continually makes a lot of investments and sacrifices in order to have a Christian school. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. Parent, a lot of times parents say, I can't have nice things because of my kids. Um, I feel like sometimes as a church, we say we can't have nice things because of kids. Right. Um, we have uh, 400 ish students and staff on campus every day. Um, that's why our uh, fellowship center, which a lot of churches have nice, beautifully decorated fellowship centers. Ours looks like a cafeteria. Because it's a cafeteria five days a week, right? Um, that's why we have um, dents and dings in the walls. That's why we have uh, graffiti in places. Now, they're, they're Christian cuss words. They're not real cuss words. So, um, uh, but, but we have kids on campus, and kids take a toll on facilities, right? Um, it, it limits the things we can do as a church. Um, but our church has made a decision to, to honor that. And to make those sacrifices because our church believes in Christian education. And so I want to be clear um, because I understand not everyone in here has their child at Temple Christian School and not everyone in here has, um, you know, th there are families that homeschool. There are families that send their children to public school. Uh, and, and I want to be clear. This is a condemnation. This is not a condemnation of any of those other type of things. Um, my, my brother teaches at a public school. Um, I, I am a, uh, and they actually won, uh, 
My brother won district this past weekend. He's a football coach at uh, Magnolia High School. So congratulations, Wayne, if you're watching. Um, and they beat their rivals, West Magnolia, which is always really cool to get to do. So congratulations. Um, when you stand up in front of the camera, you can do what you want, right? And so, hey, um, throw that shout out. Uh, I, I, I attended a public school my whole life. Uh, I, I wasn't uh, blessed enough like Pastor Doug. Pastor Doug is a product of... Uh, Christian education, uh, his whole K through 12 and then even into college. Um, I didn't know there was such thing as a Christian high school. Honestly, I, I grew up in small West Texas towns and that never even came across my radar. Um, and, and so this is not a condemnation of any other type of education. Uh, but we can't read scripture and not see that God addresses over and over again how, as believers, we should educate our children. The Bible speaks a whole lot about that. And so today what we're going to talk about is what actually makes education Christian? What actually makes education Christian? Um, is it just because a school might teach character or values? And the answer to that is no. Now, are, is teaching character as important as teaching values important? Absolutely. But that's not what makes education Christian. Is it just because uh, the teachers might be believers? No. It, it's much more than that. Um, we, you know, I mentioned my brother. I have many, many friends who teach in the public education system uh, and, and try to be salt and light in that uh, community and in that arena. Uh, but it takes way more than just that. Uh, is it because maybe you get to pray in class? Is it because you have Bible as a class? Um, is it because there's chapel? All those things are good, but Christian education goes way deeper than that. The truth is the Bible has a whole lot to say about education. So let's dig in and look at just a few passages to see what makes education Christian. But before we do that, let's we have a tradition here of uh, saying a creed together about what we believe about this book. And so I invite you to join along with me in this. Uh, the Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind, and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. We've said that for how many years now? Nine and a half years, and I can say it every time sitting out in the audience without having to look. And then you get up here and your mind goes blank. So uh, before we jump in, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for um, Temple Baptist Church who... Uh, has made a commitment and an investment in the lives of young people. I thank you for the opportunity to serve you in that role and in that commitment. And I pray that as we open your word today, um, that your spirit will resonate in our hearts the role we have to educate the next generation of young people to change the world with the power of the gospel. Lord, stir our hearts and quicken our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first passage I want to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. This is a passage called the Shema. 
It is uh, one of, if not the most uh, recognized or, or most quoted passages in all of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and so we'll start in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And, and so here's where we especially want to focus on starting in verse 7. Uh, in reference to that commandment of loving God with our heart and with our soul and our might, says you shall teach these things. You should teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so we have here what many people consider the greatest commandment of the Old Testament, the Shema. And we see it's very similar to and what Jesus patterned uh, his answer to what is the greatest commandment when he was asked the question in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there were, uh, were lawyers who were trying to trick him. And so they asked him, uh, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, that you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he said, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but the initial answer to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind references back to this passage in Deuteronomy. And so some people say, well, the difference there is Jesus added the word mind. Well, he really didn't add it. He just clarified because in the Old Testament, the picture of what a heart was um, is present in there. Um, I, in the Old Testament, the idea um, of mind is present in the word their heart. Heart in the Old Testament referenced your will, your mind, your consciousness, your being, your emotions. And so even in the Old Testament passage right there, what we're told is that... Um, we should love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. And then what we see is that we're commanded to teach our children to do the same thing. And so in this passage, we see that it's abundantly clear that a child's whole education is the responsibility of their parents. Okay? Christian education occurs today... When parents accept the primary responsibility for the education of their children. And truthfully, that's something that's been lost upon our culture. We've lost the idea that. And so I have two boys. One of them's uh, graduated from here and is now at uh, Texas Wesleyan. Uh, he's, he actually is here with us today. Uh, the other one is at home because Julie and I were both here and he is on crutches. And so we didn't have time to go pick up the tripod. So um, he uh, he's watching from home or playing video games right now. I don't know. Actually, I probably do know which one he's doing. So um, he uh, but I have two boys here. Okay. And my wife is here. She was helping lead worship. Uh, as much as we love Temple Christian School and are thankful for Temple Christian School and the education that our children have received here, it's not temp- God doesn't hold Temple Christian School as primarily responsible for Avery and Aiden's education. He holds Neil and Julie primarily responsible. Okay, as parents, 
Scripture is really, really clear that we are the ones who are primarily responsible for our children's education. And the second thing that this passage teaches us is that this education should occur continually. Not just a few hours here or there, but continually. Uh, It says, uh, and you shall teach these things diligently, meaning continually to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, that means when you're outside. So when do you teach your children? Only when they're inside or outside. Uh, when do you teach your children? Only when they're laying down or when they're uh, up and about. There's not a lot of uh, other times than that, right? So this education should be a continual process. And so when we take that into consideration that um, a child's whole education is the responsibility of the parent, and that this should occur on a continual basis, what that presents to us is a little bit of a conflict at times. How do we actually do that and work? How do we actually do that um, and carry on the rest of our lives? Um, Our culture, 21st century culture, presents unique and specific problems to these commandments. Okay, And let's just be honest, if we've not learned anything else from COVID, it's that most of us cannot homeschool our own kids, Okay, including our own, including teachers. Like I can teach seniors Bible all day long, but trying to teach my son biology is really, really difficult. Not because I don't understand biology, because my son is really, really difficult. Right. Um, And so uh, I, I love if. One positive that's come out of COVID is um, the the memes that have come out of COVID. Some of them have been brilliant. Uh, one of them was uh, homeschool biology, day seven, testing whether or not chloroform has a smell. And so, uh, but humor always reflects reality, right? There's a frustration there uh, when we tried to homeschool. Um, And so the vast majority of us don't do that. Um, I think homeschooling is fantastic, and we have a really vibrant homeschool community in DFW. We're lucky enough that um, that we have really good co-ops and cohorts and things like that. Um, And and so it's a homeschooling is a brilliant way to have Christian education. But the truth is, many of us, I would say most of us, simply can't do that. And so what we have to do as people who have been given responsibility from God, is we have to partner with and lend our authority to someone else to educate, to help with the process of educating our children. God has granted me authority, has given me authority over my two boys and their educational process, and I partnered with and lent that authority to Temple Christian School. And if if you have children in the room, um, if you have wherever or whoever is educating them, is educating them because you have lent your authority to them. You have partnered with them and shared with them. Okay. Um, and, and so what does that look like in culture today? Do you know that on average, so this is a statistic from... The American Time Use Survey of the U.S. Department of Labor. 
It says that parents spend about two hours a day exclusively focused on their children when the kids are six years old or younger. They devote only half of that time to kids aged six to 12. Once they turn 13, we don't even know where they're at anymore. They're just feral animals running around malls, places. They used to run around malls before COVID. Um, but once they turn six years old, we spend an average of an hour a day. How can we be an influence on our children when we're only spending an hour a day with them? Conversely, uh, church services, most, most families, uh, most students only spend one to two hours per week in church. Whereas students spend eight to ten hours per day, up to 40 to 50 hours per week in whatever school setting that they belong to. So which one of those do you think is going to have the most influence on the child? It's estimated based on, you know, what the students do as they get older. Um, but it's estimated that between that an average student will spend between 25,000 to 30,000 hours in K through 12th grade on, in the educational system that their parents put them in. I'd like to read a passage or a verse to you. It's Jesus is speaking. And in Luke 640, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. As a teacher, that's a very sobering, humbling thought to me. But as a parent, it should be a very sobering, humbling thought to you as well. Because whatever uh, educational process you lend your authority to, your child's going to spend twenty-five to 30,000 hours in it. And that child is going to be a resemblance and a reflection of that educational system. That's why Christian education is so important. When we lend our authority as a parent to someone which helps to shape the life of our child, what that does is it develops that child's worldview. Which brings us to point two, Christian education occurs when the educational process develops a biblical worldview. And so if you've been around um, Christian education at all, uh, we like to use that term, worldview, biblical worldview. Um, what does the word worldview actually mean? Well, it means how you view the world, right? It's kind of self-explanatory, but, but it's a little deeper than that. Um, Summit Ministries, which uh, produces excellent material, Summit Ministries says that a worldview is any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to the world, or uh, man's relation to God and the world. Okay? Um, some people, instead of using the term worldview, they use the term meta-narrative, meaning the overarching narrative that, that people live under. Uh, a worldview answers questions like, who am I? And why am I here? And what is the purpose of life? 
Uh, a great comparison that I've that I've seen and read is that um, a worldview is compared to eyeglasses. Um, I, I still have relatively good eyesight. It's one of the few things I haven't lost yet. I, I've lost my hair. Um, I, I've lost my hearing, uh, but I can still see well. But uh, I, I know many people, they can't see well without their glasses. And then when they put their glasses on, things look completely clear or things look so much different. It brings things into um, vision for them, into clarity for them. And that's what a worldview does for us. And what I want to be clear about is that every single person in this room has a worldview. Every single one of us. And all educational systems develop a worldview. Every one. So... Um, I, so George Barna, if so, I'm kind of a nerd. I will just admit that I, I like to read, um, and I like statistics, which is really weird. Um, but statistics make a lot of sense to me um, in regards to putting things in perspective. Um, George Barna is probably he's like the Michael Jordan of statistics for me, like greatest ever. The guy's brilliant. Um, and I've gotten to hear him speak at a, a couple of different conferences. And one of the last conferences I was at, he was speaking at, he shared this um, statement, which is very scary and humbling. Um, he says, with a few exceptions and modifications, you will die believing what you believed at age 13. With few exceptions and modifications, you will die believing what you believed when you were 13. What does that tell us? What that tells us is this, that a person's worldview is established by the time they're 13 years old. How a person views the world for the rest of their life, for the most part, is going to be established by the time they're 13. With that in mind, what does Scripture tell us about how we should view the world? What does Scripture tell us about how our mind should interact with the world? So I want to look at a passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, uh, Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're told here, first of all, to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Well, how do we do that? He answers it by telling us, you, you present your body as a living sacrifice by having a renewed mind. Okay? And he gives us um, a picture here. So if you, if you think back to when you used to have to take English class and you would have to write comparison uh, paragraphs and contrast paragraphs, right? So Paul here uses contrast to make a point. And he contrasts conformity to the world with transformation of the mind. Um, and he says, don't be conformed to the world. And conformity means that we're shaped by outside pressures. That things that are outside of us shape us to what they want us to be. Okay? And so, uh, 
So how many of you have seen the, the TV show How It's Made? Like I used to, I love watching that. And you can see it on YouTube now and on uh, different, many different things. Um, if you ever watch the How It's Made of hot dogs, oh man, I, if you eat hot dogs, do not watch that program. I'm just telling you, okay? Don't do it. Um, but, but one of the, one of the times they were showing it, they were showing how they were making like, uh, cookie molds. Like, you know, you stamp cook, you roll out your dough and you stamp the cookies and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it was this big giant machine. And so like it shot this piece of metal in a long strip of, uh, metal. And then there's this device there and, and all these pins. And so like they shoot the metal in and there's a, a shape up here that they're going to form it to. And then you have all of these pistons shoving and ramming that metal onto that shape. So like if it's a star, there's a star pattern up here for the mold. And then you have all these pistons hitting it and forcing it into that shape. It's conforming it to the shape. Okay. And that's a picture of what the world does to us because we're, because we're fallen people, because uh, we live in a simple world and we're sinful by nature. The world affects us. The world shapes us. And that that can apply to so many different things. But for right now, what we're simply going to compare it to is transformation. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. OK, allowing our mind to be transformed. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, OK, uh, which occurs in biblical education. Our mind, our, our thoughts, our, our self, our, our, our being um, is shaped when we see biblical education occur. Okay? Education is Christian when the process allows for students' minds to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into a biblical worldview. That's what renewing of the mind is. Allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our mind and give us a biblical worldview. Third, education is Christian when we can integrate faith and learning in a way that shows that all truth is God's truth. And therefore, all education is discipleship. All truth is God's truth. And therefore, all education is discipleship. Uh, Jesus says uh, in John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He didn't say I'm a truth. He said, I'm the truth. In Matthew 28, 19, uh, we see Jesus once again gives a command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That word there, make disciples, literally means to go teach Go teach all nations. What what we see in Scripture is that there is no difference between the idea of discipleship and the idea of teaching. But we've allowed teaching and discipling to become divorced from one another and to become kind of redefined. Um, and so uh, there's a quote by Robert Curran. It says, uh, North American Protestants were the first Protestants in the history of the church who gave up the education of their youth to the state. And so 
We could spend a lot of time parked here talking about the history of education in the church and then more specifically the history of education in our country. Um, and we would kind of get off topic. And once again, I would be fine with that because I'm a nerd and I like talking about stuff like that. But I would lose you. And, and so I do want to just say this. Um, for almost 2000 years, people partnered with the church for the education of their children. And it wasn't until uh, the mid 1800s that we started seeing the idea of government education. And, and honestly, mo- it, it, it happened in part because Protestants weren't happy that uh, the majority of Christian schools were Catholic. And so they were happy with the fact that, hey, we can get a different source of education and won't have to have Catholic doctrine in it. And, hey, it can also be paid for by the government. Okay, and so they were happy about that. And so we do want to be honest with the fact that um, not every motivation for Christian schooling has been right. Um, There there was a ton of Christian schools which popped up uh, right as we started having uh, the integration of our public school system. Um, And it's termed white flight by by many people. Um, and, and that's just a sad truth about the Christian school movement is that many Christian schools were created not because they really cared about biblical education. They didn't want their students going to school with someone that was a different skin color of them. And so we do have to evaluate why are we here um, and, and why we're here is for Christian education. And, and I'm thankful Now, I was not here 47 years ago, um, but everything that I have seen and heard, uh, that was not the reason Temple Christian School was started. Temple Christian School was started because people truly cared about Christian education. Uh, But but once we allowed this to kind of split where we started having a, um, quote, secular education system, what that created in our system What that created in our culture is this idea that there are facts which are neutral. And then you have beliefs which are our spiritual ideas. Okay? So you have facts which are are neutral and, and don't carry any weight with anything. Then you have beliefs which the individual can privately have. And the, the truth, the bottom line is, That goes directly against everything scripture teaches. There's no such thing as facts and then beliefs in the in the aspect of um, whether something is truth big or a personal little truth. No, all truth is truth. And, And that's the bottom line. Either Jesus is the son of God or he isn't. Right. Either Jesus was resurrected on the third day or he wasn't. But that can't be true for me and not true for you. Now, we can have different we can have differences of opinion. You might think, no, that didn't happen. And I might think, yes, it did. But we both can't be right. Okay, because truth is truth. And so the one of the major falsehoods in our understanding of education today is this idea that there's a body of knowledge that exists that's totally neutral to any spiritual or religious meaning. 
And that's why so many people are okay sending their students uh, to an educational system that that teaches neutral academics because they think, oh, it's okay. And at the best, what that does is it teaches our students there are huge areas of life that God doesn't apply to. And at the worst, what it does is it teaches our students that God is completely irrelevant if there is a God. The bottom line is the truth is the Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, is just as much truth as John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The laws of gravity and physics are just as much God's truth as Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Math class is just as much discipleship as Doug standing up here preaching. And so when you have holistic education, when you have an educational system where you can recognize that all truth is God's truth, it opens your world to a whole new different set of ideas when you can tie things together. Uh, the British physicist, Sir James Jeans, uh, a brilliant guy, he helped contribute to uh, quantum theory uh, regarding math, makes this statement. Nature seems very conversant with the rules of pure mathematics. In the same way, a scientific study of the action of the universe has suggested a conclusion which may be summed up in the statement that the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician. When we get to teach math class at Temple Christian School, when anyone teaches math class in a uh, Christian education setting, even if that's at a public school, They can tie the knots together. They can connect the dots that math points to the fact that we have a God of order that created the universe. Astronomer Fred Hoyle says a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. The likelihood of the formation of life from inanimate matter is one one to a number of 10 with 40,000 zeros after it. It is enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. There was no primeval soup, neither on this planet nor any other. And if the beginnings of life were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. So here's the thing. This guy is not a pastor. This guy is an astronomer. And he looks at the evidence that points to the fact that we must have been created by a purposeful intelligence. When you're studying history from a a biblical worldview perspective, you can look at George Washington and you can read his statement that says, By all powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability of expectation. He wrote that in a letter after uh, a letter to home after he was the only officer not shot off his horse. And when he took his jacket off, it had four bullet holes in it. When you can look at the one of the founding fathers of our country that points to the fact that he trusted that God was in control of his life and that God was sovereign over that situation. We see that education is Christian when we recognize that all truth is God's truth and can be tied together. And lastly, we see that education is Christian when the result of it changes the world with the power of the gospel.
The truth is this. Christian education seeks to transform our minds, as we shared and looked at in, in Romans chapter 12. And when our minds are transformed, then our minds shape our values. They shape the things that are important to us. And then our values shape our behavior. And then the way that we behave, the things that we do, can shape and affect culture. That is the goal of Christian education. Changing the world for good with the power of the gospel. So I want to share a success story in this area. Uh, I want to share just for a few minutes the story of uh, Josh and Allison Babb. Josh is a 2001 graduate. Do we have that photo? So this is Josh. Uh, This is his wife, Allison. Uh, Josh graduated Temple Christian School in 2001. Uh, He's currently the director of government affairs uh, for the health industry, for for a large health industry company. He's an adjunct professor at George Washington University. Um, he lives, he and his wife live in the DC area. His wife, Allison, uh, works for several congressmen managing their financials. Um, Josh is one of our many, many, many success stories. He and his wife both. Um, you see here Josh's family, uh, Andrew, the youngest, uh, just turned four. Uh, Charlie, uh, is six. And Abby, the oldest, is eight and a half right now. Um, so, obviously, uh, we see here that um, Josh and Allison adopted. Um, and, and they tell the story of their adoption journey. And if you'll just give me a few minutes to share this story, I think you'll see how incredibly powerful the story is and how incredibly powerful uh, their influence on culture because of their biblical worldview is. Uh, it, several years ago, uh, Allison and Josh began feeling the Holy Spirit really dealing with them about adopting. Um, and they lived in Virginia at the time, and, and they prayed through it. They made connections. Um, they had an adoption lined up. They went through the whole process. They redid the nursery. Um, they did announcements. They, they went through everything. And then when the child was born, it fell through. Uh, it, it fell through in September of 2015. And, um, and Allison grieved like she had lost a child because she did. And, and the truth is, um, it wasn't really obvious and people didn't understand it. You know, if she had been pregnant herself and had a miscarriage, people could have understood a little better. But when someone loses an adoption, it still is the same type of grief. And so they struggled through that process and they struggled with their their home group and their church, not really understanding and being able to uh, walk alongside them real well. Um, and they prayed through and they decided to do it again. And so in April of 2016, um, they... They met up with uh, another young lady. This time they were in Rhode Island um, and committed to adopt another child. OK, um, and this is Andrew, who you see pictured um, now uh, throughout this process. There was the birth mom and then the birth mom's dad. And, and those were the two that 
really walked through the process with them. And so um, if you've if you've been with a woman who is pregnant, you understand the emotional ups and downs. Right. And uh, as an adoptive family waiting, you go through those ups and downs with them. Um, you go through that roller coaster with them as well. And, and so finally, they get a call at 7 p.m. on a Friday evening um, that the mom is in labor and that they need to get up to Rhode Island as soon as they can. And so they left right away. They drove through D.C. and Baltimore and Philly and uh, Manhattan. And they finally get to Rhode Island about five in the morning. Um, but once once they got there, the birth mother's mom came into the picture. Now, she had not been in the picture up to this time, um, but she comes into the picture, and she comes into the picture trying to convince mom to keep the child. Now, and here's the thing. Obviously, um, if the mother were capable and had the tools to keep the child, then obviously that would have been the best scenario. But the mother, because of different circumstances in her life and different uh, things that were going on, just was completely unequipped. To, to raise a child. Um, and the birth grandmother wasn't taking those things into consideration. Um, she was just pushing for her to keep the child so that they could get a welfare check. Um, and, and so they get there and the birth grandfather tells them, hey, there's kind of been some hiccups. You guys don't need to come up to the room right now. And so now all these flashbacks of the last... Um, Adoption that fell through is coming back. And so for the next two to three days, they struggle with can't even see the child yet. They struggle with are we going to get the baby? Are we not? What's going on? Uh, the birth grandfather is trying to keep them in the loop and telling them, you know, what's going on. Um, and so there was a whole lot of praying and waiting and staring at the phone. Finally, they get the phone call um, that she's ready. You can come. Uh, come pick up the baby. And, and so in Rhode Island, the law is that they could not leave the hospital with the baby. Uh, the mother had to take the baby outside the hospital doors and then uh, Josh and Allison could take the baby and leave. Well, the mother, there were some complications with the pregnancy and the mother just didn't feel well and, and there was a struggle there. And so Josh finally went to the nurse's station and said, I don't care what you have to do to get her out that door. Get her out that door with our baby so that we can leave. Um, and the nurses did that. But the story doesn't end there. They had to stay in Rhode Island for three weeks because at this point in time, and this is just in 2016. This wasn't like decades ago. This was like four years ago. At that time, none of the adoption paperwork was done online. They had to mail everything. And so at some point in the process, either the the paperwork got lost. And so they had to redo the paperwork and send it again. And in Rhode Island, you can't leave the state with the child. So they had to stay in Rhode Island away from the rest of their family for three weeks until that paperwork was submitted. And then once that paperwork is submitted... The, the mother, the birth mother, has another seven days which she can totally change her mind and, and come take the child back. So they had to wait for four weeks before they knew that Andrew was theirs. Um, 
In that process, um, they had to have a lawyer in Virginia, which is where they lived, a lawyer in Virginia for them, for the mother, and for the baby. Then they had to have a lawyer in Rhode Island for them and for the mother and for the baby. All of that cost over $50,000. And so um, what does all that have to do with Christian education? And what does all that have to do with biblical worldview? Fast forward to uh, 2017 when, um, when President Trump came out with his tax reform bill. Uh, the one good thing that occurred out of them paying $50,000 in lawyer fees and in other fees was that they received a significant tax credit for that at least. So it didn't offset the whole $50,000, but it did offset some. In in 2017, in the first version of uh, President Trump's tax reform bill, that adoption credit was done away with. And they were made aware of that. And so I told you that Allison manages financials for for different congressmen, right? Uh, Allison and Josh leveraged their influence with those congressmen, and those congressmen got on the phone and started contacting other congressmen. And and literally, this is not exaggeration, um, in the second writing of the bill, that adoption credit was put back in, in large part, to Allison and Josh Babb. Because life is important to them. The value and the sanctity of life was important enough for them to understand that adoption is a really important thing. And that should be recognized by our government. Our our government should be doing things to help that process, not hurt it. Uh, The Lord's put on their mind, uh, on their hearts. And and Allison and Josh want to uh, start working with the ministry or if there's not one out there to start uh, to create a ministry that helps um, push for the codification of adoption laws across states. Every state has kind of different standards and, and to try to adopt outside a state is very difficult and they want to, to get that help. They want to be able to um, ask lawyers to, to donate work pro bono. They want to be a support for parents in this adoption process that they didn't feel, not because they weren't loved, because people just didn't understand. Okay? That's a picture of what a biblical worldview does. A biblical worldview affects culture around us. And so this isn't the only story that we could share. We could share multitudes of stories. I I, want to conclude with this. And I know that this isn't a typical Sunday morning message, um, but it's a message that's incredibly important. I just want to ask parents, who are you loaning your authority, your responsibility to, and what type of worldview is your child developing because of that? Is it a worldview which empowers them to have an impact for the kingdom? Because that's the type of worldview we should want to see in our children. Grandparents, how are you helping develop the worldview of your grandchildren? How are you walking alongside the, the uh, your children's children in this aspect of developing their mind for Christ? And maybe you're in here and you don't have children. 
and you never have. But the future still should be important to you. And this idea of raising up a generation of young people to change the world with the power of the gospel still should matter because we should care about the next generation. And so as we close today in prayer, I challenge you to think on those things. Let's pray. Father, I do once again just thank you so much for Temple Baptist Church. I thank you for the vision that its leadership had 47 years ago. I thank you for God, uh, the countless lives you have changed on this hill. I thank you for the fact that we do have a Christian school and I thank you for the fact that we can be bold in our proclamation of your truth. And God, I also know that there are many people in this room who, um, who don't have the means um, to send their children to a Christian school. Um, and, uh, Lord, that uh, there are many that have chosen other types of school for other reasons, God. Uh, ultimately, um, Christian education can occur in any type of setting, but it's the responsibility of the parents to make sure that it does. And so, Father, I ask that you empower parents to educate their children in the way that you've clearly laid out for us in Scripture. I ask that you help uh, us to point the next generation of people to you. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for the gift of your son. And as we sing in his name this morning, Lord, meet with us and stir our spirits, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.